at the time this research was done, the, the average net worth of a white man in the United States was, I think, around $90,000. The average net worth of a white woman was slightly less. The average net worth of a black man was in the 20-some thousand dollar range. But the average net worth of a black woman was less than $10,000. And we looked at that disparity and we said, we need to find a way to start to narrow that gap. Welcome to Danforth Dialogues, lessons from the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic with Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Today's episode features one of Dr. Montgomery Rice's conversations of significance with special guest Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon, where they sit down to unpack the stories and overarching purpose behind the historic $10 billion investment to advance racial equity at Goldman Sachs called One Million Black Women. We hope you walk away as inspired from this conversation as we did. And now we'll hand it over to Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Enjoy. David. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to join me and the Morehouse School of Medicine for our Conversation of Significance series. During this time, we take a moment to pause and reflect on how we build community by having honest and worthy conversations that really enable us to find common ground. We try to explore new topics and gain a new perspective. Because I know, like me, the last two years have been trying moments for all of us, particularly of us who have a global community, as we've tried to navigate and deal with an unknown virus that ravaged our communities, deal with racial uprising that put human equality on display and subsequently adjusted to the change in our financial landscape. So I know like me, as a leader, you're glad that we are approaching the other side. And we're gonna use these pivotal lessons to, I think, become better humans. My goal for us today is to engage in a conversation between leaders focused on the lessons we have learned during these last two years, and to hopefully provide a bit of hope to members of our respective organization. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be with you, Valerie. I know we're gonna go back and forth and I sort of want to start with what I think is uh, one of the biggest things that happened during the pandemic that really started to make a difference, I think, for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the demonstration of a corporation showing that racial equity, their commitments tied to it. Last year, you announced that over the next decade, Goldman Sachs would invest not $1 billion, but $10 billion, and make $100 million in philanthropic grants to narrow the opportunity grants for at least 1 million Black women across a variety of pillars, healthcare, education, digital connectivity, financial health, housing, jobs, a whole bunch of things that were bold in the commitment. And you were doing this as a leader of a financial institution. So can you tell us how this initiative came to fruition in this way? Sure. I, I appreciate the question again. I really appreciate the opportunity to participate in this discussion with you. You know, there's, there, there, there's been a lot of talk over the years about corporations, you know, trying to do things 
to impact policy and help us all move forward. And we certainly at Goldman Sachs feel we have a great obligation to try to find ways to participate in the communities that we operate in. In the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, there were a number of conversations in this organization that really led this leadership group to feel like we had to find a way to have a broader impact. We had to find a way to do something over time where using the tools and the resources that are available to us at Goldman Sachs, given the, the privilege we have and the platform we operate off of, to really have an impact. And the discussions we had with a number of our Black colleagues and partners you know, really encouraged us you know, to think broadly, collectively, about ways that we could impact. You know, our view when we think about using our resources is we have certain things that we can use to make change or have a policy impact or actually a broader impact over time. They include the intellectual capital of our people, the financial or economic capital that we can invest or, or help raise or form or direct, and obviously technology. And it's very, it was very easy after that moment to say, well, we pledged to do this, we pledged to do that. We wanted to try, and I tasked our team to go find a way to create a platform that we could really invest in over a long period of time that we felt if we did it correctly, we could tangibly measure the impact that it had. And one of the things the team did is the team went off and said, let's do some research and figure out where we think we can make the most impact. And one of the things the research brought back was the economic position of black women was significantly more disadvantaged than obviously the position of white men and white women, but even versus black men. So the, at the time this research was done, the, the average net worth of a white man in the United States was I think around $90,000. The average net worth of a white woman was slightly less. The average net worth of a black man was in the 20 some thousand dollar range, but the average net worth of a black woman was less than $10,000. And we looked at that disparity and we said, we need to find a way to start to narrow that gap. The research proved there was a real opportunity there. And so that led the team to start thinking about how we could make investments and direct investments in a way that over time could tangibly move the needle for a group of black women. And we came up with this idea, could we, could we through the life cycle of people's lives impact 1 million black women and be in a position to prove that the investments we were making in companies, in organizations that were really trying to narrow these economic opportunity gaps were advancing more quickly. And so that led us to sit back and say, okay, what's the size of the opportunity? How much capital? How are we gonna direct it? We thought about different things. We thought about you know, early childhood, we thought about education, secondary education, we thought about health and wellness, we thought about financial affairs and savings, we thought about um, job opportunity and skill-based training, we thought about a whole range of things and said, if we can go out and bring the right group of people alongside us and really take a concerted effort over 10 years to invest in platforms that can actually advance that, we can impact 1 million people and we can actually show how that impact works. We also felt that some philanthropy and some grant making capability where we saw people doing interesting things that weren't you know, real businesses would also be needed. And so that's why we committed the philanthropy. What we wanted to do is there are businesses that are making investments 
in advancing this economic gap, you know, particularly for black women. And so far, we've had some really good success in identifying. And as I know, you know, you know, we've been at it for a year. We've deployed over a billion dollars of capital and we're just getting started. And so we're very optimistic about this. But it flows through what we've learned before. Build a platform, take a long term view, create metrics of accountability and really try to show over time through those investments, through using the things we have, capital and intellectual capital, we can make a difference. You know, I'm a OBGYN, reproductive endocrinologist and fertility specialist. So when you talk about the life cycle, you all looked at the things that impact women and families through their life cycle. And I think that, you know, one of the biggest opportunities for me is to serve on this advisory council. It's been such an honor to do so because what I have seen in real time is that, first of all, you were responsive to what was happening externally. You looked internally at you all's assets. You were willing to do listening tours, and we continue to do those. And then you did the research, and you want to make sure that the investments and the interventions, we're going to be able to measure the impact. And that is how we transform. And so I am just honored to serve in this capacity on this advisory council. And I appreciate how transparent you all have been in keeping us informed and then sharing the wins and the learnings, right, along the way, because we know that we are going to have learnings. Everything is not going to be done exactly right to begin with. And we're, I'm so excited about the engagement that I'm seeing from you and your team. So thank you for that. I, I really appreciate that. And I just, I have to thank you for the critical role you're playing as a member of our advisory council. Um, and you've personally played a very important role in the 50, the 50 listening sessions that we've hosted to date. You've participated in a lot of them. And I really appreciate your time in that. And, you know, we've heard so much about the need for access for so many people in order to eliminate some of these barriers, as you're saying, on education, on reliable transportation, on childcare. And so one of the things I'd ask you is in those conversations, these listening conversations, what surprised you about these conversations? You know, I think about, um, David, when even though I can read about the wealth gap or the health disparities, it is always still surprising when people start to tell the stories and really start to tell how it impacts them. The other thing I would tell you that I was surprised by, particularly the entrepreneurial uh, spirit of these women and the fact that sometimes it's a small amount of capital that they were looking for to jumpstart their businesses and how they really didn't have access to that. And so one of the things that I, when I knew that you all were listening is that you started to look at programs that you had sponsored over the years to give people access to smaller amounts of capital, right? Or, or loan programs, because everybody's not looking for something philanthropic. Lots of people are saying, okay, I want you to be able to make an investment with me and I'm gonna show you that return on the investment. And you all started to create new programs 
or pull some of your older programs out, right, that you've used before with some of your women-driven initiatives to say, okay, this is what works for this business. So you recognize that one size did not fit everybody. And if we were really going to be impactful, then we needed to meet women where they were and meet them where they were with their business. And I really did appreciate that. But it was surprising to me when I really could see the impact of that wealth gap and when women didn't have access to that capital and how it held them back from extending or advancing or expanding their business. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I, I appreciate those comments. And it it also, you know, you talk about transparency because one of the themes that I took away from a lot of the listening sessions is that you can't be what you can't see. And I mean, this kind of came away and that's why transparency as you're highlighting is so important. And, you know, look, we've been very lucky not just to have you, but also to have Valerie Jarrett, Lisa Jackson, Aisha Curry, Dr. Ruth Simmons, so many others on the advisory council because you all are very inspiring to a next to a next generation. And I look, you know, I look at your career and you've had a number of different jobs in your career. You've been a researcher, you've been a clinician, obviously an educator, you're an advocate for sure. But if you don't mind my asking, take us back a little bit. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your childhood and kind of the key moment when you realized you wanted to pursue a career in medicine and do some of the things that you're doing that are making a difference. Well, you know, I probably would say people probably get tired of telling this, me telling this story, but I'll give you a synopsis of it. You know, I'm a proud product of Macon, Georgia, a small town outside of Georgia, a community of what I would call hardworking individuals. Uh, and I had a hardworking mother who ensured that my three sisters and I were loved, cared for, and constantly reminded that all things were possible. But it was hard for her. She was a single parent. My parents divorced when I was six years old. She didn't work outside the home initially. And she got a job at Georgia Craft Paper Company. And if you ever smelt a paper mill, you know how challenging that could be. She would change her clothes on the back porch before she walked in. And she worked the swing shift, seven to three, three to 11, 11 to seven. And no matter what time she came in or whether she was getting ready to go to work, I always tell people she would whisper things in our ears. All things are possible. You can be anything. Now, you know, I think my mother was pretty smart, even though she had only a high school education. Um, but I know she didn't know a lot about subliminal messaging. But that's exactly what she was doing for us. She was forcing her girls to believe that we were not limited by our circumstances. And she really thought that education was the equalizer. So she pushed for us to go to school. And I knew I was gonna go to college, even though my graduating high school class was 1,049. In 1979, I graduated from the largest high school in the nation at that time, Southwest High School. And so there wasn't a lot of counseling going on about where you should go. But I ended up at Georgia Tech because my science teacher saw something in me. And even though I started in chemical engineering, when I got a job offer, I didn't want to do that. And so instead of staying there for five years, I left in four years with a chemistry degree, went on to Harvard Medical School, and the rest is sort of history. But it was really this foundation and this belief that I could do anything because of what my mother and what I saw other women and other people doing. As well, I had a strong 
support network. And, and David, I think that is one of the other things that this initiative provides for women. They kind of create a cohort or a posse of other women that they can talk to. And you don't have to reinvent every failure, right? You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are a lot of things that you can learn from one another. And I think that's the other great thing about this initiative is that we recognize that we can create opportunities for women to become sponsors of each other and learn from one another, because that is clearly what has been uh, very instrumental to my success. That's great. That's really great. So let me, let me ask a couple of questions now. So one of the things that I think about is that Black women are the fastest growing demographic of business owners before the pandemic. What do you think accounts for this and how are they being seen as force multipliers in a world of small businesses? And what happens when they increase to the ranks of executives? How does that impact a business? Well, I mean, first of all, small businesses are huge to the economic vitality of this country. And so much of the job growth in this country comes from small businesses. And certainly, you know, there's no question that the acceleration of Black-owned businesses before the pandemic was something that was very, very encouraging. You know, our research shows us that Black women are just so foundational to their communities, to their families, and therefore, you know, to the U.S. economy as they participate in this fundamental ecosystem of, um, of small businesses. The best way that we can reduce the earnings gap for Black women and if we did it, and we did it really successfully, we create another 12 to 17 million jobs in the United States, and we'd impact GDP probably by one and a half percentage points. You know, we know that if you can invest in Black women early, if you can get to these small business owners at an early stage, it's not just the right thing to do, but it also drives real and economic returns in local communities. And those economic returns in those local communities obviously bring people further along. You know, in our first year, um, as we made investments through one million black women, there were a couple of things I'd highlight that we did that I think really amplify this. We invested in something called Colab Capital. Colab Capital is an Atlanta-based investment fund that's really trying to support black founders then and are really trying to help get more of that early stage venture capital to black founders at the moment. Black founders have been getting less than 1% of the available startup capital. And so Colab Capital was a great example of a company that was accelerating that. And that was one of our early 1 million Black women investments. In addition, we partnered with a microfinance organization called Grameen America, which finances these small businesses and provides lending capital to them, which obviously can accelerate uh, these Black entrepreneurs and we're a part of Grameen's new Elevating Black Enterprise Initiative, which is particularly focused on getting this early stage capital, lending capital into black businesses. And so those would be kind of two concrete examples I would point to that I think are really making a difference. And you know, David, when I, when I sit down and I think about the fact of the role that black women play in the household, okay? So they make most of the health decisions for sure. And so we know that if they have some financial well-being, 
then that is going to influence the health of not only them, but the health of their family members, because they're going to make different decisions. So let's, let's talk a little bit about health care. So COVID certainly laid bare. I mean, I mean, it just showed us the disparities in health and, and the treatment in Black communities. And even if we didn't want to see it, we sort of didn't have a choice. We had to sort of look at it. And so I'm just kind of concerned about what's going to happen or what's going to change, if anything, once we get through the pandemic, are we really going to be able to see some of the resources that have been allocated, will they be sustained? How do you think about this when you think about the investments that you all have made? How do we sustain this? Yeah, I think, look, I think this is a big issue. I think it's something that deserves a lot of attention. Um, you know, broadly speaking, there is a lot of resource that was been directed because we've had a crisis. And you're exactly right. When the crisis, you know, pulls back, are people, are people going to stay committed to getting capital and resources in places where there have really been deficiencies? I think broadly, one of the things the pandemic has done is it's forced us to recognize that we're underinvested in healthcare support broadly. We need to take much more responsibility for having emergency backstops in our healthcare systems. And this is particularly true in communities that are less fortunate, particularly true in communities of color. As we think about One Million Black Women as a platform, this is an area in particular that we've identified where we're finding some interesting opportunities to invest, but we also really want to extend and expand you know, on that capability. And so I think that when we look back 10 years from now, a meaningful percentage of the activity on the One Million Black Women platform will be in one way, shape, or another invested in healthcare and wellness and really supporting communities of color in that context. And, and, and you know, David, so when I think about the fact that we knew that uh, Black maternal mortality was significantly higher than it is for white women before the pandemic, but we definitely have seen more conversations around that. And so one of the things that we're very proud of at Morehouse School of Medicine is that we were able to submit an opportunity for, for support through the One Million Black Women Initiative to help support the work that we're doing in, this, in our Center for Maternal Health Equity. And that to us is going to be a game changer because we are using the women's voices to first of all, magnify what women experience as their challenge as they are going through their pregnancy. And then we are training individuals who are supporting them during their pregnancy and also training other healthcare professionals such that all of us can be more culturally competent in how we deliver care and how we respond to women based on the diversity of experiences that they are, are having during the time of pregnancy and after pregnancy. So thank you for, the, for that opportunity for us to leverage women voices in a very comprehensive way that we're gonna be able to extend not just to the woman who's being impacted, but to a larger community of potential um, providers who are going to uh, take care of those women. That, that's just been fantastic. And so thank you so much for that. Well, I, I, I appreciate that, but I must, I mean, I must say to everybody that's listening, 
the leadership that you're providing around this program. This was one of the first investments we made in One Million Black Women, and it just it was it just stood out um, as as really extremely well thought out, well supported, and really making a tangible difference. And so we're glad to support it. But congratulations on you know what you're doing there and the impact that it's having, but more importantly, the impact that we know it will have have, have over time. You know, I want to pivot for a moment and ask you that the theme of Women's History Month this year was women providing healing, promoting hope, which, which you know, really ties to this whole maternal health issue and everything you just outlined. Can you talk a little bit more um, just about maternal health? And, you know, this program's great, but are there some other things that we ought to be thinking about, talking about, um, as we think about this issue, we can talk a little bit more in depth of things that the center is doing to really advance this. So, so yes. Yeah, so thank you for that. One of the things that we have done is look at again through research, what are the real causes or issues that happen pre-pregnancy, during pregnancy and post-pregnancy that would contribute to this widening gap. First of all, contribute to maternal mortality, but a widening gap. And so one of the things that we've done is again, as I said, using the patient voices to actually talk about what their experiences are, okay? And when, they, when we look at that, we actually have a, a project that looks at this, a, a research project that looks at this and it captures uh, objective, and, and quantifiable uh, things that are happening during the period of the uh, pregnancy and then during the time of delivery that may contribute to raising the level of disparity that we see. And sometimes, David, it is uh, systemic challenges in the healthcare system, and sometimes it's also the less than cultural competence of the provider. And what do I mean by that? And this is not necessarily always intentional. It is sometimes people are not always understanding that based on who this person is that's sitting in front of them, they may come with a different profile of health challenges that may require you to think differently about you, how you're going to extend care or make recommendations. And so that's what we mean when we talk about culturally competent care. So what we've done is put a series of different types of healthcare providers in our training module. So we're looking at doulas, we're looking at community health workers, we're looking at obstetrical, what we call patient navigators, and we're looking at the physicians and the nurse practitioners and having all of them go through similar training to talk about how do you deliver more culturally responsive care. Now, we also know that there are some diseases that disproportionately impact women of color that may increase their risk for maternal mortality. And so we have another group of our providers, research scientists who are looking at that from a research perspective and will bring those learnings in. And then the time that's postpartum. We know in the 1960s, that was nice for you to have six weeks that you would be in your postpartum period. But we know for some women that needs to extend longer. So we've done a lot of advocacy for that postpartum period, meaning that we're going to have health care coverage for these women up to one year. 
Because when you look at chronic diseases like hypertension, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, if you look back at women, what you will find is that many of those women had signals during their pregnancy that indicated that they could have some long-term challenges with these diseases. And if we had just followed them a little bit longer, we may have picked, it, picked up on it. And so we've been doing a lot of advocacy, state by state and federally, to actually increase postpartum care for a 12-month period of time. So that's the kind of work that we must do, very similar to how you all decided the programs that you're going to invest in. We did research. We listened. We understood that some of these things were based on social determinants. So it wasn't just about throwing money at one problem. It was really about looking at this comprehensively and having milestone outcomes that we're going to look at that's going to lead to long-term success. That's fabulous. That's really fabulous. And I'm sure it's having a big, big impact. It, it really is. So now I have to ask you this question because all of us, are thinking about what does the new norm look like, okay, as we transition <laughs> through this pandemic. So as we think about companies reimagining work post the pandemic, how do we believe the voices of leadership should be engaged? How should we be using our voice I know we see mergers and acquisitions. We see a lot of other companies coming into play. But do you see opportunities for us to create a new norm post the pandemic that's been influenced by the pandemic? Well, there's no question that the pandemic has influenced all of us because we've we've lived through this 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 experience that's a you know, it's a very difficult experience, very personal experience. It's had a profound personal experience in almost everyone. It's touched everyone in different ways. You know, as we go forward, there are certainly learnings from all this. And I, you know, I do think there's a lot that we can learn about flexibility and how we support people. And I think one of the biggest, you know, learnings or takeaway I have is everything's not the same. Um, it's different for different people. It's different for different people at different times of their life. There is a difference between somebody who's 23 years old and is starting out in their career and someone who's 38 and has a young family and is, you know, with their partner juggling, you know, jobs and trying to keep things going. And so, you know, we have to be, we've got to be, we've got to find ways to support people, to, you know, run our businesses effectively, but also when you have great talent to support talent and make sure they feel supported and they have um you know, they have the resources and the broad support, you know, to carry to carry forward, both effectively personally and in the business they're involved in. And I, you know, one of the things that disappoints me is this gets this gets framed very much in black and white language. And it's very different for every company. It's very different for every person. It's very different for different parts of the world. And so I think being nimble and being flexible and, you know, listening to the needs, you know, of others is super important. But that doesn't mean that you can't have decisions that have to be made, you know, to move forward effectively. I like you, David, I say to our employees all the time and my leaders that we need to meet our employees where they are. And though we still have to keep the business functioning, right? We have to keep our eye on the prize. And I think that if we all, like I know you're trying to do and like I'm trying to do, if we, would, if we listen to our employees, 
make the necessary investments, they will continue to make the investments to make our companies uh, successful. I do have a question for you though, another one, because I'm in the middle of a leadership series entitled Danforth Dialogues. And that name comes from Danforth Chapel, which is a chapel at the Morehouse College where Dr. Benjamin Mays and other leaders have spoken. There was, there's a lot of history to that chapel. And I started to have a leadership series there to really gain learnings from the pandemic, but also to provide leadership insights to young people. I think it's so important. And so I'm going to ask you this question. What advice would you share with our students who are just starting out in their careers? Remember now, these are some students who are all in the health field. They're either MDs, PhDs, they're biomedical scientists, they're PAs, public health students, some of them online. And many of them really had to pivot in their expectation of what the world expected from them during this pandemic. So is there advice you would share with them about how they should think about their careers? Well, you know, first of all, you know, the fact that they've chosen to be in the healthcare field broadly, I assume, you know, for a lot of them, there's a personal passion and wanting to really help people. And that's really wonderful. That's admirable. And I know that so many of them are going to have a big impact over their careers. But I think the advice for young people in the early stage of their careers is pretty similar, no matter what business or career you're starting. And, and, and a lot of this, I think, has to do, my advice always stems from the perspective that they're at the early part of a journey. There's a very early part of a journey. And the first thing is don't be in a hurry. Um, you have a lot of you have a lot of time. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be passionate. You shouldn't want to work hard and you shouldn't want to, you know, advance. But, you know, part of the early part of a career is about learning. It's about meeting people. It's about developing a network. It's about growing personally. And by the way, those are things that continue all through your career. But it's a long road. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and you've got to keep yourself healthy and well, and you have to have the perspective that I'm making a long-term investment in my professional career. And it's not all going to go perfectly. There'll be times, there'll be times when you like your job, you like your boss, and you like the people you're working for. And there'll be times when, you know, maybe one or two of those isn't exactly what you like. There might be a time when all three of those aren't what you like. But, you know, stay the course, take a long-term view. Don't overreact to short-term disruptions and phenomenons and try to, you know, try to keep your eye on the long-term prize, which is, you know, building equity for yourself and your career, um, having passion about what you're doing, finding balance in your life and having your life and your career work. And it's not easy. And so, you know, take the long-term road, ask for advice and don't be in a hurry. Thank you. That is so valuable. And I know that uh, any of the women who are entrepreneurs who are thinking about starting businesses and thinking about how they get started in their in that first couple of months or a new business, I know they would take that to heart too. Don't be in a hurry. Learn, gather, and engage with other people so that you can advance your career. And I love what you said about taking equity, putting equity in, in this space. So thank you so much. This sort of concludes our conversation of significance. I'm just so honored that 
uh, David, you would engage with us, engage with us at Morehouse School of Medicine, not just around just the One Million Black Women Initiative, uh, but also around this discussion on leadership. I think it's so important that uh, our communities hear from leaders like you who have stepped out of what would be your norm of the financial markets and understand that how much this impacts everything and every day lives of people. And so I'm just excited that you joined us. And uh, I'm so excited to also that we're going to acknowledge Goldman Sachs during our 2022 Q uh, M Gloucester Society celebration. You all will get one of our health equity awards for all the great work that you all are doing. So thank you so much. And I appreciate your friendship and look forward to us working together over these next maybe five, 10 years, depends on if our companies let us stay. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, Valerie. And I, you know, I just have to say that our partnership with, with the Morehouse School of Medicine, but in particular, our partnership with you personally and my personal partnership with you is hugely important to all of us at Goldman Sachs. And I, I think there's a lot that whether that whether they let you and me stay or not, I think that Goldman Sachs and the Morehouse School of Medicine are going to be connected and have a real impact together over time. And so thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion with you. And, uh, you know, I wish you well and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Danforth Dialogues with Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. We hope you enjoyed the show. For more information, please contact us at danforthdialogues at msm.edu.